Thank you, David. I asked David to play that song just before the sermon today because my text and what I want to speak to you about is about being alone. And I think some of the most lonely people I know in the world are, are teenagers. And they're lonely because they don't know the Lord. They're walking through a maze of, of people that, that appear to be friends, but they're not, not when the chips are down. And, and they could be in the midst of a crowd and be just as lonely as they can be. Some of them never get out of that. Maybe you're here today and, and you're lonely down deep. I hope to speak into that a little bit today. My text a few short verses from the last chapter of the, of the book of Genesis. It's about Joseph, and it speaks to by now that, but now their father was dead. This is, he's speaking about Joseph's brothers, the ten older brothers that he has, and he has one younger, but this is addressing the ten older and, and his father Jacob, and Jacob has just died. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, we, we beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we're, we're your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of, of many people. Now don't be afraid. I'll continue to take care of you and, and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Tell me, Father, ancient words, ancient words from thousands of years ago, but, but one, of the, one of the things that's so true about, about people then and people now is they're they might wear some different clothes, but they're really, they're really no different. And the good news is that you're the same. You're the same today as you were in the time of Joseph and his brothers and Jacob and all the travails of the early tribes of Israel. Lord, you minister to them. In our loneliness, in our times of despair, in the midst of, of our messes, help us to trust that indeed you love us. And you want to minister to us if we just, if we just would let you do it. Come Holy Spirit, speak into our lives from your Holy Word. In your name we do pray it. Amen and, and amen. One of the things I think that's, that's changed over the years is is that people aren't as familiar with the Bible now as, as they used to be. And, and many of those who are familiar with the Bible are more familiar with the New Testament than the, than the Old Testament. But I preach often out of the Old Testament. You've probably noticed that. And, 
And I, peek, I speak into and preach from the lives of the people that were there. There's a lot of strange names back there. But I don't think there's any name in the Scripture that has a story that we can't work from, that we can't learn from, that we can't see ourselves in. This morning I'm speaking of, of Joseph. Joseph's story spreads spreads throughout the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis like it's some beautiful God-woven tapestry. Just amazing. The story is so enthralling that, that casual readers can, can go through the whole thing and they just feel great about it, but, but they miss the wisdom that's in there. And the wisdom I'm talking about this morning is is the wisdom about how it is that you can deal with people who are sinning against you with the intent purpose of being to just ruin your life. Lots of people like that around. And with the, with the, the rise of social media, we've all got the gadgets, with the rise of social media and Snapchat and, and Twitter and X or whatever, there's just all those things out there. With the rise of that, one of the great sadness has been that there's been a decline, a decline in morality, a decline in civility, a decline in the way we, we interact with each other. And people could, people could shoot arrows at folks and, and you don't even know where they're coming from, but they know where they're aimed. And so with this increasing number of, of personal attacks, all you got to do is turn on the news. This is the radio anywhere. It's everywhere. Tragic. I think with all that happening now, it's, it's a good time to look back at the story of Joseph and, and see how we might better be equipped in the power of the Holy Spirit to deal with, with folks that are, that are vindictive. But before I could really, can really do that, I think I need to build a little bit of, of background with you because maybe the story of Joseph is old and you've forgotten details of it. And, but I just want to hit some, some highlights so we're all on the same page to start out with. The scriptures pick up the narrative of Joseph at an unusual place. They don't, they don't start when he's born. They pick up the narrative of Joseph's life when he's 17 years old. First time he's been, he's 17. And at 17 years old, he is despised, despised by his 10 older brothers. Why? Well, in part, it's because, it's because Joseph is their father. The father's name is Jacob. Of all the sons, he has 12 sons. Joseph is the father's favorite child. Joseph knows it. The brothers know it. And the thing about Joseph, he's his father's favorite child, but he rubs it in. He rubs it in. He rubs it in because his dad gave him a coat of many colors. And, and what does Joseph do? He struts around in front of the boys with that coat on. Look at me. Look at me. 
The coat had long arms, it had long legs on it. It was purposely built like that so he couldn't work out in the fields like the brothers did. All of them had on shorts and tunic tops. Struts around, lording it over them, taunting them, see. And this goes on and on and on to the point that, that the hatred that the brothers have for Joseph just boils over. And one day, they come at him. First thing they do is take that coat of many colors off. They tear it up. And then they throw him in a pit in the ground and leave him there to die. Then in a stroke of, of, of um, uncharacteristic generosity, they pull him out of the pit. But you know what they do? They sell him. They sell him to a caravan of Ishmaelites who are on their way to Egypt. They sell their brother for 20 pieces of silver. Sell him to the Ishmaelites. Their intent being to doom their obnoxious younger brother to a lifetime of slavery in Egypt. Joseph does indeed wind up being a slave in Egypt. First stopping part is he's, he's a slave in the house of Potiphar. Now Potiphar is the captain of the, of the Egyptian guard. Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph and she tries to seduce him. When Joseph rejects her advances, she sees to it that Joseph is thrown into prison, that he's charged, tried, and convicted on trumped-up charges. Now, while Joseph's in prison, he makes friends with, with two folks who work in the household of the Pharaoh, his baker, and his cup maker. And Joseph has this ability to, to interpret dreams. And the baker and the cup, baker, cup bearer, they have dreams, and he interprets them. And, and he helps them by interpreting the dreams. And, and so they, they make a pledge that they're going to help Joseph. If they ever get out of there, they're going to help Joseph get out of there too. See? Well, the Bible, the Bible tells us that the cupbearer does indeed win his parole. He's out. But the baker is hanged. And the good book also tells us that, that when the cupbearer gets out, he forgets all about his promise to help Joseph win his release. Now you might wonder, how could a cupbearer be in a position to help Joseph win his release. Well, you need to understand what the cupbearer's role was. The cupbearer was right next to Pharaoh. He carried the cup that Pharaoh drank out of. And before Pharaoh drank anything, the cupbearer tasted everything that was put in that cup to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. The Pharaoh 
trusted the cupbearer. The cupbearer was in his presence. The cupbearer was in a great place to say a good word for Joseph, but, but he, forgets, he forgets all about Joseph, see? Now let's pause here and, and, and consider this. At this point in his young life, Joseph 17, 18 years old, he's hated by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He's tricked by a woman. He's imprisoned on false charges. And, and he is left to rot in jail by a friend who has betrayed him. Now, if you'd been through all of that, what would your outlook on life be? I bet it would be just like I think Joseph was. I bet you would be bitter. Why? Because you'd think everything was running against me, that all these different incidents are happening, and it's just, it's just ruining my life, that evil's just, evil's overwhelmed me. And I bet you'd be cussing God if you thought of him about it at all. But here's a theme that runs throughout scriptures. We might forget about God, but God never forgets about us. God always wants more for us than we want for ourselves. And, and I think that's especially true when evil is doing a number on us. Now at this time, Joseph is just, he's spiritually blind. He, he can't see it. He can't, he can't see that, that God's been at work in the mess that he's been involved with to raise him up. He can't see that when he's in that pit, God raised him up out of there. He can't see that when he was in slavery, God had, had raised him up. He can't see that when he was in prison, God had raised him up. He can't see that when he was all alone, when he had no friends, that God had befriended him and raised him up. Now, if you're familiar with, with George's story, you know that at this point, God wasn't through raising, wasn't through raising Joseph up. For as you might remember, Years later, God raises him up to be the second most powerful man in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Why? Because Pharaoh puts him in charge of all the food in Egypt at a time when a tremendous famine had engulfed the whole area. Joseph's riding high. But just when we think that, that good has won the day, evil rears its ugly head again, and Joseph's brothers appear on the scene. See, the family, the famine had extended beyond Egypt, way beyond Egypt, and it had engulfed the region that we now know as Israel, that, that area that, where Joseph's father and his brothers and cousins and the whole family, all of them lived up in that area no food up there either. So the brothers make several trips down to Egypt to buy food to keep the family alive. And on their last trip down there, 
the brothers discover that the man who now controls their future, the man who is saying, give them food or don't give them food, the man who now controls their future is the brother they had hated. The man that now controls their future is the brother they had envied. The man who now controls their future is the brother that they had, they had sold into slavery. And when Joseph identifies himself to his brothers, they are so terrified that they can't speak a word. Why do you reckon they were terrified? I think they were terrified because they thought Joseph was going to deal with them the way that many of us deal with people who have sinned against us. They thought Joseph was going to think back to that time in the pit. And he was going to say, I'm going to get even now. I'm going to pop it to them. And see, they think like that because that's what they would do if they were in Joseph's position. What, what, do, you, what do you do when, when you've got somebody right where you want them? Well, they're expecting Joseph to stick it to them, to make them pay a heavy price for the, for the evil that they've done. But what's Joseph do? Now, they're, I think they're over in the corner, scared to death, see? And that's why Joseph says, come over here. Going out the corner. So they came closer. Tentatively, I'm sure. And, and, and he says to him, he says, I'm Joseph, your brother whom you sold into Egypt. All the color goes out of their face by that time. You know. And then there's that word, but. When you're reading Scripture and you see that word, but, something's coming after it that's important. Something's coming after it that's unexpected. That's out of the ordinary. I'm your brother who sold in Egypt. I'm the brother that you're fixing to, that you think is going to stick it to you. But don't be angry with yourselves that you did this to me because it wasn't you that did it. It was God that did it. God used you to send me here so that I could preserve your lives. Now, as you might expect, I think the brothers were, were dumbfounded. See, they, they, knew, they knew the evil they'd done. They knew that their intent was to ruin Joseph's life. They can't figure out why is it that, that Joseph don't want to ruin our lives. So the brothers think there must be some kind of hidden agenda here. Must be something going on. And maybe the thing is that that Joseph isn't sticking it to them because their father is still alive. And they remember that, that Joseph loved his father and his father, his father loved him. And, and so, so the brothers conclude that, that he's sparing us now because dad's still alive. See? And in the back of their minds they're saying, I hope dad lives forever. Because <laughs> when dad goes down, we're in deep, deep trouble here, see. Now, maybe it would be helpful, I think, to, for us to understand the plausibility of the brother's thinking. Jacob's the daddy. 
see. And, and Jacob, Jacob, his influence over his sons and their families is enormous. Not only is Jacob important because he's the patriarch of the whole family, but Jacob is important because Jacob is important to God. See? And why is Jacob important to God? Because God had promised to fulfill the sacred covenant promise that he had made with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and had renewed with Jacob's father, Isaac, God had promised to, to fulfill that covenant promise through Jacob. Jacob was important to God. And, and, and everybody in Jacob's extended family, all of them knew about the many encounters that, that Jacob had had with God. They knew about the latter that stretched from heaven, that God lowered from heaven down to the earth. And they knew about the angel messengers running up and down that ladder. They'd heard all the details about the night that Jacob spent wrestling with God. And they were reminded of that night every time they saw Jacob. Because you see, Jacob walked with a bad limp. It was a limp that God had given to him during that night. Everybody in the family, they knew that God had changed Jacob's name as a sign of, his, of how important he was to him. Everybody in the family knew that God had changed Jacob's name to Israel. And by now, all of Jacob's son's families were known as the tribes of Israel. For these and many other, other reasons, they, they, Jacob's revered among the Israelites. But see, the thing is, Jacob is a human being. And like all human beings, Jacob died. When Jacob dies, the brothers fear the worst. They think the storm is coming. Dad's gone. There's nothing to hold him back now. We're going to get our just rewards. So they try, to get a, they try to get ahead of the game, see? They send a message to Jacob and then to Joseph, and then they, they come and bring it themselves. And, and they, in essence, say to him, you know, we, they're probably on their knees in front of him, say, we, we know we've done wrong. We know it. We know we've sinned against you, and we sinned against you, we sinned against God too. We, we know it all of, all of a sudden they're religious. And we beg you to forgive us. See? You know what? I bet when Joseph was in that pit, the ten older brothers were standing around the top looking down that hole at him. And I bet he was crying and he was begging, begging his brothers to forgive them, to forgive him for being such a jerk. But see, they didn't listen to him. And now it's turned around, see. We beg you to forgive us. We prostrate ourselves like slaves. And in their minds, they know that Joseph knows that he lived as a slave in Egypt. 
we put ourselves in position, you were, you were, and we humble ourselves before you, and, and we ask for your mercy. Let me stop here and just kind of interject this. I dare say that not many of us would be willing to make the kind of genuine confession that Joseph's brothers make to Joseph. You see, too many of us do wrong. We know we're doing wrong. We're not worried about the consequences of, of what we're doing wrong. And we have no sense of shame. Shame. You know, shame's a word that I don't hear used very much these days. But when I was a child and I did something wrong, the first thing I heard my parents say was shame on you. Now, the punishment was coming later on. It, this wasn't taking the place of that. But the first thing they did was look me straight in the eyes and say, shame on you. Because, see, my parents wanted me to, to know in no uncertain terms that when I did something wrong, I disgraced our family. I disgraced myself, and I ought to be ashamed. You ever been ashamed? I think Joseph's brothers were ashamed. They were so ashamed that they were willing to, to admit their sinful deeds. You know, I think it's fair to say that, that most of us would rather die than admit we were wrong. In fact, I, I think these days that, that if you're waiting on somebody to, to admit that they're wrong and to, and to feel ashamed, you're liable to grow old waiting. When Joseph came face to face with with those who had tried to destroy his life. When he came face to face with, with his brothers, he says this to them. Don't be afraid of me. See, they're, they're expecting revenge. Don't be afraid of me. Am I God to judge you and punish you? That's what you did to me. You acted like God. You judged me. You threw me in the pit. You sold me into slavery. Am I God to judge and punish you? As far as I'm concerned, God turned into good what you meant for evil. Instead of, instead of, I started to say something wrong. I started to say something bad is what I started to say. <laughs> Instead of doing what we all thought he would do, he was kind to them. He was kind to them. Reassured them. See? They wouldn't, don't fear me. He had to reassure them that that was the truth. See? And see, what, what Joseph was saying with those words was he, was he was trying to tell his brothers, 
that he wasn't forgiving them because they had apologized. He was trying to tell his brothers that he'd forgiven them a long time ago. See? And consequently, they didn't have any need. He didn't have anger simmering inside of him, waiting for a chance to get to him. He'd forget him a long time ago. He's way past all that, see? So they didn't need to worry about him exacting any kind of revenge for what they'd done. So now here's, the, here's the big question. How was Joseph able to deal with sin so directly and squarely aimed at him, how was he able to do with, deal with that kind of sin in such a God-honoring way? And more importantly, how might we deal with folks who have sinned against us with the intent, purpose to destroy our lives? How might we deal with them in a God-honoring way? How might we deal with them in the way that Joseph dealt with, with his brothers? I think the verses I just read suggest that the answer has, has two parts. First, Joseph says, am I God to judge and punish you? You ever known people who thought they were God? See, with, with those words, Joseph was telling his brothers that he had willingly forfeited the power position that you and I long for. You ever been in a place where, where the tables were turned and all of a sudden you could pop it to somebody who popped it to you? And you could just feel it. You're in the power position and you look at the person and it's like their little ant walking around your hand and, and you just want to... You know, stick it to them, see. We want to be in that kind of position, see. Well, Joseph's there. He's in that. But what, what's he saying? Is, I'm not God. I'm not going to do that. In essence, Joseph humbles himself before his brothers. He says, I'm not your creator. I'm not, your, I'm not your judge and I'm not your jury. I'm not the one who's going to separate the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares. I'm not going to put myself in the same position that you put yourselves in when you hand me down that hole. Because you see, I'm not God. And I don't sit in the place of God. I know that God is God all by himself. And secondly, in those verses, Joseph is saying, God turned into good what you meant for evil. With those words, Joseph is doing the most amazing thing in the world. He is thanking his brothers for the evil they caused in his life. Isn't that amazing? And you know why he's thanking them? Because if, if they hadn't put him in that pit and sold him into slavery, he would have never been able to experience God's power to overcome sin. 
in essence, Joseph is saying, notice God, God took what you did, he just, he just flipped it upside down. He took my defeat and he turned it to victory. You meant it to shame me, but God flipped it and he gave me success. You put in front of me a big stumbling block, but God turned it into a stepping stone. Now, after giving you all this, all this background, I want to get down to the crux, down to the heart, down to the meat of what I hope you'll take away from this message today. And it's rooted in this statement. I'm not Joseph, and you're not Joseph. But we were like Joseph when he was 17. And we can be like Joseph when he was 30. It's there on the wall for you. Look at, look at it again. See, I'm not Joseph, and you're not Joseph. But we were like Joseph when he was 17, and we can be more like Joseph when he was 30. Now let me unpack that for you a little bit. When I was a teenager, I could not relate to Joseph's story for, for several reasons. First off, when I got old enough to get a driver's license, something happened in my relationship between me and my father. All of a sudden, it was like we were buttonheads all the time. We were at cross purposes. And I read Joseph's story, and it was like Joseph and his father adored each other. I just couldn't make sense out of that. Something else about Joseph's story I couldn't make sense of when I was 17. If members of my family had tried to kill me, there would have been a lot of things on my list that I would want to do to them. But forgiving them would not have been on my list. Yet Joseph not only forgave his brothers, he thanked them for what they did to him. I just, I just couldn't make sense of it. Now I knew, I knew those were big questions. But as long as I was full of myself, I was not interested in answers. Ever been full of yourself? At 17, I was. Nobody could tell me anything. I didn't care about the answers. I knew it all. That changed years later. When I was asked to teach a course to adults on the patriarchs, from Abraham to Joseph. I dealt with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from a historical perspective. 
when I got time to teach about Joseph, I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't, I couldn't keep Joseph at arm's length. Why? Only God knew the answer. But there was this other niggling part of it. See, I, I couldn't keep Joseph at, at arm's length. And, and down deep, I didn't want to. So as I studied and prepared, and I, I came at Joseph looking intently at his life between the time he was 17 and sold into slavery until the time he was 30. And he sees his brother again for the first. He didn't see him in that in-between time. 17 to 30. So I don't, what, I, what I wanted to focus on was his life in there. What had been going on, see? And it didn't take any kind of deep studies to realize that at, that at 17, Joseph was a naive, self-centered kid. Just like I was at 17. Perhaps just like you were at 17. So at 17, he's this naive, self-centered kid. And yet, and at 30, he's a responsible family man. And he's respected far and wide for his wisdom. Something had happened in those 13 years. See? It became clearer and clearer to me that during those 13 years that there had been a transformation in Joseph's heart and his mind and his, and his soul. A transformation that so dramatically changed the way that he, that he comported himself and the way that he interacted with others that when his brothers met him when he was 30, they didn't even recognize him. As I considered the magnitude of the change that had been wrought in Joseph's life in those 13 years, from 17 to 30, I, con I concluded that it was almost like Joseph had been born again. And indeed, he had. He had been born again from above. Because, you see, God had transformed his life, had transformed him from the inside out. Now, had the, had the transformation from, from spoiled brat to godly man, had, that been, had it been easy? No, no. Had that transformation during those, had, had it been painless? No, no. But it had been necessary. Because you see, before, before God could, could raise Joseph up, God had to knock Joseph down from this pedestal that he put himself on. Before God could raise him up, that coat of many colors and his condescending attitude, that, that had to go, see? Because you see, Joseph was too full of Joseph to be of any use to God. God had to knock him down a peg or two. That's what the pit was about. 
That's what the Ishmaelites were about. That's what the interaction with Potiphar's wife was about and the cupbearer and, and all the other evil that went on in there. I wonder, are you too full of yourself to be useful to God? Are you like Joseph when he was 17? During those years from 17 to 30, I don't think Joseph was thanking God for everything that was going on. No. He was doing just what you and I were. He was cussing and fussing. But here's the thing. During those desperate, hard, lonely times, Joseph's faith was maturing. Because see, as God emptied Joseph of Joseph, he filled the space with himself, with God. So it was during those 13 years as God was knocking him down, as God was emptying him out of his self-importance. It was during those years that more and more of God came into him. And that's what it means by, by his faith was maturing. To the point that when he's 30, he could, he could look back over those 13 years. And he can easily see how God's firm, loving hand was at work in all the hardships that he went through. You see, through all of it, through everything he went through, Joseph had learned to trust in God. At 17, who did he trust in? He trusted in himself. At 30, he trusted in God. Most of y'all are older than 17. But I dare say many of you are still 17 in your relationships with the Lord. I said earlier that I'm not Joseph, and, and you're not Joseph. But we were like Joseph when he was 17, and we could be more like Joseph when he was 30. I confess that that was true of me when I was, when I was 17. And sadly, I didn't, I didn't begin to let God do the hard work of, of transforming my life until I was in my early 30s. Why did I wait so long? Well, looking back, it's clear to me that, that I was stubbornly refusing to trust God more than I trusted myself. See, I wanted to keep on wearing my proverbial coat of, of many colors. And I was a loser for it. Now, if you can relate to this little snippet of, of my testimony, I encourage you to admit that your coat of many colors, whatever it might be, admit that it's not keeping you warm, always keeping you cold, cold toward God and cold toward others. And you're the loser for it.
You know, in many ways, I was, I was once like Joseph at 17. But by God's grace, I'm now a bit more like, like Joseph when he was 30. And consequently, I'm a bit more like Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I still got a long, long way to go. But I'm on a journey. And I invite you to join me on that journey. Let's pray. Lord, it's amazing to me how you can be 50, 60, 70, 80 years old and still be 17. Still strutting around like you're somebody. Still strutting around like you, you got everything under control. Still trusting, still strutting around trusting in yourself. Lord, we need to understand that, that like Jacob, human beings die. And we need to be asking the question, what then? We're all going to spend eternity somewhere. And when we leave this earth, we, we're not going to be wearing a coat of many colors. We're going to be standing there naked as a jaybird right in front of you eyeball to eyeball. Lord, we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to, to come upon us, to humble us, to empty us of ourselves so that we'll be open to let you do the hard work of transforming us to more nearly reflect your image to walk closer to you so that we might spend eternity with you. In your name we do pray it, Lord. Amen. And